Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is The Lightning of Possible Storms, a collection of short fiction that reads like a novel. It includes stories about a mad scientist trying to steal his son's dreams, a story where a personification of capitalism is trying to impress his boss by winning a contest at work, a story about a Hollywood producer who just decides to adapt a bunch of explosions, uh, and many other stories, some funny, some terrifying, Salima Nawaz uh, says that it's cheerfully horrifying and full of the unexpected. Suzette Mayer says it's beautifully written and expertly composed. And I say, uh, it's time you read this book. I've been working on it for almost 20 years, and I'm excited to share it with you. So please go to PossibleStorms.com. Again, that's PossibleStorms.com, and you'll find out a lot more about this book and some of the bonuses that you can get when you buy this book. Let's get on with the show. So I'm talking to Derek Ballyu, and uh, Derek, uh, uh, I would like to know a little bit about your writing process in particular because uh, you're somebody who works in a few unusual areas, um, and especially, I think, uh, and also somebody who straddles a number of different types of writing. So you've done a lot of conceptual writing, you've done a lot of visual poetry, and you've done other stuff as well. Um, uh, so I was hoping you could maybe just start a little bit by talking a bit about what kind of makes you uh, interested in writing in, in a kind of broad sense and like how you come at writing as a person who has uh, at this point, you know, a body of work uh, and is very much I, has moved within that body of work from sort of in sort of different directions. Like you've had, from my point of view, having known you a while and seeing your work for quite a while, um, I mean, I've seen like phases of your, you know, body of work. It seems very, um, um, maybe in some ways organic, but in other ways, you know, you're, you're very much directing yourself in particular places. And so I'm curious to know a little bit about how you think of yourself as a writer and what it is that you, uh, like when you start to make these sort of shifts, how you're and why you're doing that. It was very broad, but uh, if you could just start oh, in that broad space. That's that's a great way of starting. Um, in, in in like again, kind of like in, in broad gestures, I would say that to me the the role of a writer or the the me the driving thing behind writing is to is to discover what I thought I couldn't do, and like is to push my own personal boundaries of what I thought writing was. So. When I've taught creative writing, I tell my students to imagine a map in their heads of everything they think writing can be from, you know, whether it be nonfiction or fiction or poetry or screenwriting or comics, everything that could fit in, I can actually do it with this box, everything that would fit in here. That's your map of what writing is. That's the whole world. Now it's your, to me, it's your job as a writer to walk up to the edge of that map and add an inch add a little bit more, find out, okay, this is everything I think writing can be. Now 
explore all that. And that's your reading, that's your research, that's your becoming a writer. Your being a writer is expanding that map a little bit more off the top of the screen here so that you're actually challenging yourself. And so how do I apply that? Um, I, I, I've joked that if I, if I start a project and I, and I, I, I definitely, I've cribbed this from friends, but if I start a project and I can say, uh, if I ask myself the question, is this writing? Not, is this good or is this bad, but is this writing? Uh, and I can't answer that question. I can't say, yes, it's writing or no, it's not writing. If it sits in that kind of, uh, I don't really know, then that's where I want to be. That's where I like spending my time because it means I'm, and this is the ideal project. The ideal project to me is, pushing my writing, pushing myself to discover things I didn't think I could do and to try to expand what I thought writing was at all. So can you give a couple examples of the kinds of things you've done then in your career, like some of the stranger projects maybe you've pursued? Just a few examples. Now, people can sure. see some of these at your website, um, yeah. uh, but just you know, talk a little bit about some of your bigger projects you've done. Well, I mean, uh, even, even mentioning the website, and thank you for that, um, even the fact, and I'll, I'll take a side uh, path for a second, um, that same idea of is this blank question mark. My website um, often in, uh, embodies the idea is, is this publishing? And is it responsible publishing? Is it responsible publishing that when your publisher has taken all the time and put out your book and spent all that money, is it responsible for you as an author to take the PDF and post it on your website for free? Uh, is it responsible for you to take your entire body of work and have it available for people to take and do anything they want with uh, for free? Um, I don't know, which is why I've done it, which is why we could actually have this conversation that almost everything I've ever written um, is available as free downloadable PDFs on my website. So you can just help yourself. Now, can and, you just say, say, what you, say your website name right here? Oh, just it's, so people it's, have it it's, uh, it's www.derekbeaulieu.wordpress.com. Sure. And if and you look across the top, uh, one of the little links is PDFs, and you just click on there, and it lists everything. Yeah, all Derek's books there. Yep, to help yourself. And the idea is, is that um, I think that writing, I think that writing circulates best. I think that it serves its purpose best when it's in dialogue with other writers and with other readers. That it's not a monologue. This isn't me just you know, turning on the hose and just spraying it into the world. This is me wanting to talk to other writers. This is, a, this is me putting something out and saying, I don't know what to do with this. Or what do you think of this? Or help me grow. Or maybe help you grow. So I put all this material out there hoping for remixes, responses, reviews, conversations, uh, opportunities, and it never fails. It always brings strange things back. So... And it always pushes my writing forward to challenge, to challenge me to uh, do strange things with it. So some of the stranger projects, some of the more unusual projects uh, have been in responses to other people's writing. Like I said, I think writing is in dialogue. So um, as an example, Andy Warhol in 1968 put out a novel called A, A Novel. Now, being that it was Warhol, uh, 
I did say he put out a novel. He didn't write it, you know, like, gaw. Uh, he asked a couple of the people that kept hanging around his factory to carry around tape recorders with them everywhere they went for a series of weekends and record everything they said, all the conversations that they had on a series of tapes. Then he took those tapes and hired a bunch of stenography students, a bunch of writing students from the local high school uh, to transcribe them. Just like, listen in and write down everything you hear. One of those students ended up being Mo Tucker, who was the drummer for the Velvet Underground. She was like 16 when she did this. And um, so just type out everything that you hear. And then he got these transcripts and, you know, it was like 400 pages. Took those transcripts, brought them right to, right to the publisher and said, there, that's the book. There's no plot. There's no character. There's no, there's no anything other than transcribed conversations. There's no setting, no description, nothing. And each one of the various stenography students transcribed it in different ways. So all it is is a record of conversations of 1968 in New York City. What were artists talking about? You know, it's about them in taxis going to parties. It's about who they're sleeping with or who, what drugs they're taking or what parties they're going to or, you know, what gossip they've heard. So I took this book and it, it's a fascinatingly strange and a hard book to read. Um, and as a, as a lark, I started with the first page and scanned it into my computer and was playing around with it and just opened it up and paint and used a little eraser button and erased all the words except the punctuation marks and the sound effect words. Honk, honk, you know, beep, toot, you know, and, and did like the first page. I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. So then I tried doing another one and another one and set myself a goal. And once again, I was using this as a, as a teaching tool. So I had taught a, a class at Alberta College of Art based entirely on writing by or about oral, um, where I asked my students to write, they had to write a page a day, a page a day every day in their journals. And most of them said it was impossible that, you know, like, oh, that's way too much. That's way too much homework. Uh, to be writing a page a day. Um, and I said, it's like going to the gym. Go to the gym. So I, I, you're going to go to the gym every single day. And they're like, it's too much. So I'm like, okay, all you need to do is you need to go to the gym, get changed, go into the gym itself, and do one push-up. One. And then you can leave. And the next day, come by and do one push-up. And then you can leave. And you do that a number of days in a row, and eventually you're like, you know, I think, I think I could probably do two. I think I could probably do two push-ups. And so I do one page of Warhol, erase Warhol, uh, erasing Warhol's text, and then I put it aside. And the next day I did one. And the next day I did one. I'm thinking it's 400 pages. It's going to take me 400 days. It would take about a year to write this novel. And by the end, I was doing 10 or 15 pages a day because, you know, I had been doing one push-up a day. And it's, you know, after a while, you find you can do more than one. So I'm, I'm left with this pile of paper, 400 some odd pages of nothing but punctuation marks arranged in grids from the, from the lines of the text and, and the sounds of New York City. And it started to look and remind me of the, you know, like the map of New York, the fact that the streets are in a grid. Just looking and it for the to, actual copy here, Derek. I'm going to show yeah, you. Yeah, it actually started to feel like it's sound. This, these, are the, these are the sounds of New York, not the, 
uh, not the sounds of conversation, but the sounds of the streets themselves. Well, what's and that? So to me, this, this is a conceptual project. This is a strange writing project that sees composition as conversation, as response. But also, I didn't write anything in this book. I erased other people's work. And suddenly, to me, can you be a writer? Like, could not writing anything and just erasing other people's work be a writerly act? That, to me, started pushing myself around. That what would it mean to write a novel where I don't write anything? All I do is take stuff away. Well, something I think is really interesting about this particular project, just to um, kind of jump to it in a second. So I'm just going to like, if you see, if people can see this, I don't know if they can, but you know, again, yeah. like Derek is saying, he's got all the punctuation here and he's got the sound effects. So effectively what he's done is he's taken a novel that primarily historically gets this interest from the fact that Andy Warhol, this uh, celebrity uh, artist, you know, he's so famous in this period, he can literally take uncorrected transcripts of him and dump them in a book, call it a novel. Uh, I mean, it's a brilliant book in certain respects, but also it's a, it's a show of his celebrity. Uh, and and what, his, what it does is, you know, Warhol is the figure who overshadows every other contributor to that book. And what uh, Derek has done is, of course, erased everything except for the contributions of the stenographers. So they're the ones who have decided to write the word dialing. Uh, they're mm -hmm. the ones who put that punctuation in that particular place. These are the things that were not said on the tape. Um, but they are, could hear are, in the background. Yeah, but these are the writerly decisions that the stenographers, these you know, 16 year old you know, uh, girls or whoever you know, did. It's their contributions that were invisible that now are the only thing that you can see. Uh, on you know these otherwise blank pages, so it's a very interesting political and even I would say argue you know, a weirdly feminist action to do this sort of non-writing writing, uh, and uh, so there, there's a whole idea or set of ideas that is kind of underlying this particular activity of writing, uh, which kind of puts it then into the camp of a, a particular genre of writing, which we call uh, broadly conceptual writing. So you can talk a little bit about some of the, con what conceptual writing is and some of the, you don't always do conceptual writing, but you've done no. some of this conceptual. Yeah. I'd say probably about half of my, half of my projects have been, um, about half have been visual and about half have been, or concrete and half have been conceptual. Conceptual writing um, kind of came to the fore in the early 2000s, and um, was a uh, prominent, um, prominent form of writing in North America for about 20 years, and continues to be part of the discourse. And ultimately, what what conceptual writing is is a toolbox. It's a set of tools about looking at writing that absolutely are part of a literary canon. These are tools that many, many, many writers have used over hundreds of years. None of it is particularly new. It's it, what, what conceptual writing did that made it new was isolate these tools and say, use these tools primarily, not as a complementary act to the, the act of creation, but to, to foreground these tools over other ones. And they tended to be... Um, uh, what, what, what sometimes was called uncreative tools. So it would be uncreative writing. So the idea would be to um, copy, to erase, to plagiarize, to 
uh, hire other people to do your writing for you, to, you know, uh, write a, write a machine, write a computer program to harvest information off the internet or to, to write it for, uh, to create a program that would, you know, write your novel while you have dinner, you know, like basically look at all these other ways of writing that both seem, my cat is having a tantrum. I was going to say that. Uh, (laughs) The, the tools seem non-writerly. They seem like an affront to writing because they're all these things that uh, seem to undermine the honesty, the heartfeltness, the emotion of writing, the emotion of being a writer, that personality. And yet they're all tools that have been used by writers, as I said, for hundreds of years. So whether that be writing under constraint, using only one vowel or, you know, only sentences of a certain number of words or, uh, you know, that kind of perspective, um, you're seeing that in, in Roman poetry back, you know, poetry to the pre-Roman time. Uh, the idea of plagiarizing or lifting lines directly out of other people's writing. I mean, this is something Elliot was doing. This is, none of these tools are new. Um, but to isolate them and say, use just these tools, make this your toolbox, um, was a very interesting move because what it did is it felt, despite the familiarity of the tools, you open it up and it's like, I know screwdrivers and hammers and wrenches, I got all this stuff. Um, A lot of writers felt it was an affront. Uh, A lot of writers felt it was marginalizing the act of writing itself. When all it was taking, all it was doing was taking historical tools and saying, just use these ones and see what happens. And so what you got then was a series of novels that were transcriptions of conversations uh, that were, which is what Warhol did in 68. So this was not particularly new. Erasures, uh, computer written novels, constraint-based novels, uh, and poetry. Um, Poetry being written in uh, unusual perspectives, maybe only in the second person, you, or only in the first person, or, you know, in dialogue, but no, no setting, you know, like all sorts of ways of kind of limit to once again, get us to the edge of that map, that square, and say, if we can actually say everything in the square we understand is writing, but something written by a computer with no people involved, well, that can't possibly be poetry because there's no heart, there's no person. Well, in that case, that's right on the edge of that map because you're saying this does not qualify anymore. So what is it that we need to do as writers to make that qualify? And yeah, like, that to me was the, that's, that was the driving force in conceptual writing. Right. Now, what I think is interesting about um, that metaphor pushing at the edges of this map and, you know, into this, you know, unexplored territory and kind of broadening, you know, the, the map in that way is it uh, very much lends itself to this uh, is it, it doesn't necessarily deny you know the value of these known territories but it just sort of is you know placing the artist at a position of a kind of position of trying to expand and you know mm-hmm. you know develop into these kind of unusual places i find what's really um i really personally uh, enjoy um cross you know crossing different types of writing and you know trying to find sort of you know mutated hybrid you know kind of forms which i think is a different uh approach but is is has the same spirit you know like of trying to kind of move into a new direction you know although 
maybe it's less pushing out the edges of a map and more, you know, trying to build, you know, towers and dig ditches, you know, down into the ground. Um, but before we kind of get into the other sort of big chunk of what you do, which is these visual or concrete poems, um, I want to just note that like you, you've been talking about books and large projects, but you do have like ways in which you can work on a smaller scale. So um, you have a, in, in the Why Poetry Sucks anthology, you have, for example. Uh, which uh, was just edited by a very, uh, very handsome uh, Winnipeg-based uh, author. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. But you know, one of the pieces you have in here is called Nothing Odd Can Last. And so, uh, and what, can you talk a bit about that particular piece and where that comes from? Because I think it's a good example of what you're talking about, of, you know, kind of picking up on things that people, writers have already been doing for a long, long time and just sort of like, attaching oneself to a tradition at the same time that you're kind of moving, maybe trying to move past. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think that one of the, one of the, one of the, to me, one of the responsibilities of a writer is to be a, to be a reader. You got to read deep. You got to read long, you know, like all this, you know, you just, you just, you're constantly working. I'm constantly working in the, the loam and the fertilizer of other people's writing. This is what fuels us. You want to be a writer? You got to read. You got to read and read and read and read. So um, in the 18th century, um, Lawrence Stern wrote a, um, a, very, a, a very prominent, very wacky and strange novel called The Life and Times, uh, The Life and Opinions of uh, Tristan Shandy, Gentleman. And uh, it's, it seems like now, if you look at it, it seems like a postmodern novel. Um, it's supposed to be the entire life and all of the opinions of this fictional character, Tristram Shandy. But I mean, it took, it takes, it takes hundreds of pages for Tristram Shandy to be born. Like, like, like yeah. we don't even start with his life. We start with his conception and all this reflection of being in the womb. Like we don't even get to his life. And there are sections where it's like, you know, where the author, the narrator says, you know, if this was a really good book, it would have, you know, it would have beautiful marbled front pages. And it's like, and this book doesn't have it. But why don't we put a beautiful marbled page right here in the middle? And it's like, because those are cool and those are classy and it should have a marbled page. And so there's a marbled page right in the middle. And so it kind of takes apart all these things that makes a novel a novel, particularly at that time, turns it all on its head, mixes it all up and gives it back to us. And these were... These were stunningly popular books at the time, so much so that um, other authors bootlegged them. So there were nine volumes, yeah. The Life and uh, Opinions of Tristan Shetty Gentleman, uh, now is usually issued in one book. But originally it came out nine volumes. Uh, but there are there is a volume 10 and 11 and 12 written by other authors who just thought, you know, like, this is really popular. I want to get in on this. So they'd write their own, just like you see like Harry Potter books being written in China now. My favorite part of Life and Opinions of Trishma Shandy is the fact that uh, because he's publishing them serially in these, you know, volumes, he has, you know, there's time between the volumes coming out. And so at one later point in the book, he actually starts to address critics of the earlier volumes inside of the book. <laughs> at one point he says, you know, critics have uh, complained that, you know, I have too many digressions in this novel. But I tell you, you know, a novel is nothing but digressions. You know, that's what the digressions are the great soul of the novel. You know, it's a brilliant sort of interesting 
hilarious. Which, of course, in the novel, because he's digressing from the novel itself to address yeah. the critics, it, you know, like, yeah, it's it's a fabulously strange book, but it's a very particular because of its age and its strange structure. It's a very difficult book. Um, so Nothing Odd That Can Last uh, was actually um, a critique of Tristram Shandy when it first came out. That was a dismissive phrase a critic used. It was like, well, this is fine, but nothing this odd could last. Like, nobody's going to be reading this in 100 years. And of course we are. So that particular poem, uh, I went online to a series of like Cole's Notes sites of like study guides and just pulled out all the questions that they suggested were good study questions, were good reflective questions, and just took them out of study manuals for Tristram Shandy and put them in, uh, put them in a row and, and arranged them as a list without ever mentioning Tristram Shandy. So you start like, what? They become these strangely reflective st- statements. It's like, what? You can't anchor them to, to that book. Um, so they end up getting reflected back on the poem, but also on the author itself or the, the reader. And it becomes this strange kind of like, and I like the fact that they can start mirroring, like hold this, hold this up against other books and see, see how it lasts. Right. And, uh, so that, that, for instance, that poem is entirely, it's a collaged poem from other sources. So it's a collaged plagiarized poem taken entirely from sentences of study guides for Tristan Jandy. I want to pinpoint a few things about that poem. So for people, you know, watching this, you know, students of writing or students of literature, you know, who are kind of thinking through how they would write or how they would read in this manner. I just want to highlight a few of the specific practical things that you're doing. You can kind of jump in here at any point you want to say something more about them. But so one, I want to point out uh, that there is one, you're, you're doing, this is an example of found poetry in the sense that you're pulling this material that you haven't written yourself uh, and you're reproducing it, you know, as a found, you know, text or a series of texts that you're collating here. Um, two, the title itself uh, is not, it is a found text as well, but it's from a different source. You know, it's not mm-hmm. one of these questions. It's, you know, as you say, this original contemporary uh, at the time of that book coming out, mm-hmm. uh, this criticism of the book. Um, that is operating as title. Uh, and so that title is also is an, a reference uh, and an illusion as well. You could take that title and run it through Google. In fact, a student would, uh, right? If they didn't know what they were trying to do, they would take the title, put the strings around it, run it through Google. You would find the original quote. And that's mm-hmm. when you would start to anchor. So, so the title does sort of in a weird way, not directly, but kind of indirectly start to anchor it to the original text and provide a bit of that context even as this kind of a joke, an ironic like joke, you know, here, although, you know, he's saying nothing odd can last, you know, here is the proof that these odd things, this odd thing has lasted. Uh, And it ends up being a comment on conceptual writing itself that a lot of people were like, yeah, you know, writing like this isn't going to last. Nothing this odd can can possibly stick around. And it has had lasting impact. And here we are, uh, you know, 20 some odd years later since this series of toolboxes gained prominence. And, um, we're still talking about it. So even if you're thinking that the poem itself, nobody's going to read this. It's too weird. I think there's also an interesting way in which it works because both the title and the questions, although they seem to be coming at opposite directions, you know, the title seems to be dismissing 
the Tristram Shandy. The questions seem to be valorizing Tristram Shandy as an object worthy of study. But both of them are an attempt to normalize, to, to diffuse the weirdness of this thing, right? Either diffusing it by dismissing it or diffusing it by making it sort of normal. Here's like the normal questions you could ask of any novel, um, as if they applied to Tristram Shandy, right? Yeah. This totally deranged, you know, uh, pro early novel. Um, it, it's a fast, it reminds me of my favorite uh, novel in English is Moby Dick. And uh, it reminds me very much of Shandy and Moby Dick insofar as is this book that is venerated um, as a classic and is not often discussed in a way that addresses how strange it is. You know, Moby mm -hmm. Dick especially, uh, people... The experience of hearing about Moby Dick and reading Moby Dick is, you know, wildly <laughs> divergent. Yeah, we think it's an adventure novel. It's going to be like, you know, Treasure Island, of this great hunt for a whale. Mm -hmm. And then you read it and you're like, what the hell is this? And it's full of digressions and it's full of strange descriptions. And it's like, this, this seems to have nothing to do. It's like he got bored of writing it halfway through and then spent some time doing something else and then came back to it. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, right, right, whales. And, you know, like, it's back, it's, 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 it's a beautiful, beautiful book. I sometimes teach Moby Dick in creative writing classes because any example of any type of writing you want is found in Moby Dick. <laughs> yes. You know, from, Absolutely. like, just simple lists of strange things uh, to, you know, just metaphorical descriptions of a whale's penis, you know, to, like, uh, here's all the, here's an essay on why whales are fish. Here's, you know... A crazy, you know, well-written action and, you know, thriller kind of-esque action to, you know, bizarre That whole thing about, about why whales are fish is just so yeah. illogically beautiful. Like it's, it's pataphysically wonderful that, you know, I, I need to kill Moby Dick, but Moby Dick, this whale, if I'm going to kill it, I couldn't deal with the idea that it has feelings. So... If it had feeling, if it's a mammal, that means it 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 nurses its young. That means it actually has feelings. It it thinks nice things about babies, uh, and it can't it can't be a mammal because it would mean it that thinks nice things. So therefore, it has to be a fish. Yeah, such <laughs> and a so the brilliant... whole book is actually this argument that whales are fish, and it's like, what the hell is going on here? <laughs> it's a strange, strange, but but the, I find that. But like Tristram Shandy, it's a book whose strangeness gets diffused when people start to talk about it. People talk about Moby Dick. They say, call me Ishmael is the opening lines of the book. There's like 20 pages before that yeah. of quotes uh, from other places about whales. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's a very, it's just, a, it's an interesting phenomenon. So what I think I like about that particular poem is it really gets to the heart of like that, in addition to being kind of a bit of a joke and kind of a, you know, a self-reflexive kind of poking fun at critics of, you know, uh, conceptual writing and whatnot, it, it also inserts it into that tradition and, that is, and provides a real, you know, defense of it. But at the same time, it kind of gets into that whole, it almost criticizes conceptual writing as well as being this, um, it has this double-edged sword of like, once it starts to enter the academy, once it starts to kind of come, once the weirdness gets to cut, cut off from it and it becomes normalized, um, you know, there's going to be that edge loss. Like, it's got a lot of different ways in which it can operate. Um, yeah, once uh, a poem starts getting talked about on Zoom, it's not really exciting yeah, anymore. It, yeah. It, yeah, in some ways, right? Um, and then you also have uh, this poem in What Push Sucks, which is uh, January 28, 1986. Again, 
the, just a date for a title that provides a bit of a clue uh, mm -hmm. to what the poem would be of it. What I love about this poem is it reads like a, um, a Warner Brothers cartoon. Right, you know, there's George. Where does she come up from, George? Yeah, but where does it come up? Like, I keep thinking of that of George. You know, uh, the kind of mice and men. Yeah, uh, Warner Brothers reference. So this this uh, this particular poem. Um, so while the first one is all a found poem, it's all phrases stolen. Uh, this is a this this poem is made of a tr of a transcript, and uh, this is a transcript of a home video. Uh, a home film video, somebody just, you know, literally standing in their, in, on their street with a video camera, looking up at the sky, watching the Challenger take off. And it gets, you know, gets up into the sky and of course it explodes and it blows up. And uh, years later, um, people thought that the only, the only footage of the Challenger explosion was what you were seeing in the news. And years later, this, this particular footage came to light of somebody who had filmed it from their own perspective on the street. And it's, it, to me, once again, it was this, I watched this video and I was very familiar with the explosion. We had seen this before, but what made it strange to me was listening to this, this fellow's narration, which was, like you said, strangely comedic, totally separate from what you're watching, uh, completely inane, um, and yet engaging with this incredibly touching, incredibly uh, moving moment in American history that comes across as just this, like, just like, just this dumb narration. And so all I did, once again, was just listen to that video and just write down what he says. That's it. No context, no setting, no anything other than it's a, it's a monologue. It's a... You know, it's dropped right in there. You know, I don't know if it uh, belongs coming out of Hamlet's mouth or not, but it's just this, this monologue of dumb, you know, like this total dumb. And, and yet, like I said, it's, this is, for poetry, we think that poets, once again, you know, like we think that a lot of poetry is about a particularly particularly erudite particularly beautiful or well written well wrought uh response to an emotive moment you know like something has broken my heart so i write beautifully about it um and yet uh for the challenger explosion here we are faced with something tragic something you know horrible this is actually the reality of an emotive response to the Challenger explosion. This is what people said when they saw it. They weren't crying. They were like, wow, that, that doesn't look good. You know, like, hey, George, where's it supposed to come? Like, it's completely inane. That is actually the transcript of a real emotive response. This is poetry. This is the emotion of tragedy. Of tragedy. Um, this is what Hamlet would actually have said uh, when faced with his ghost. I always say when I read horror novels, I, my favorite genre is horror and the horror novel. But uh, I always, my complaint about horror novels is that uh, they're so, the, the trend in horror is to cleanly narrate things in a tr uh, very straightforward manner. Um, and, and to me, if things, if it's so horrible, it should be hard to talk about. 
you know, and so what, what I like is writers who start to kind of break down almost yeah. like the story breaks down in a certain respect when they hit that point. But just to kind of go back to your earlier point and flip it a little bit before we move on to talking about visual poetry. Uh, um, you, you mentioned the toolbox and conceptual writing is, you know, here's a just different way to get a toolbox. What strikes me about the challenger poem uh, is that if we, there's actually a, uh, another challenger poem by another conceptual writer, you know, Kenneth Goldsmith wrote a, uh, a conceptual piece that deals, deals the same tragedy where he takes, you know, these transcripts uh, from news reports uh, covering the event. And, and that's from and his book, in, 11, Amer uh, 11 American Deaths and Disasters. And yeah. in that, in that particular part on the challenger disaster, there's a, there's a moment uh, where this child has called into a radio show and they're reporting you know, a child called in and asked, was it the apple that caused the explosion? Cause you know, he had given this, you know, woman an apple, this teacher, yeah. school teacher, Christine an apple before she, yeah. before she went into space. And he wanted to know, was, was some, there's something wrong with the apple? Did the apple cause this? And it's such a heartbreaking moment. Like it's exactly the kind of detail you would put into a novel. Yeah. Um, and it's, but it's been found Goldsmith has, you know, no skill as a novelist. He's just, he, he's using, he's literally transcribing some news report. Again, these people aren't novelists. It, it's just this weird, you know, it's a different way to get the exact same thing that a novelist, a novelist would get at that moment in a different direction. But they would, mm -hmm. in, in, so here's another tool getting to that same place in another direction. Why it works in Goldsmith is what he reveals in that operation is that we have this way we're just trying to fit this senseless thing into a story. We just want it to be a story. And what you see all the time in that Goldsmith book is we see the process of this chaos becoming an ordered narrative. And we get to like see it. Whereas, you know, in the live event happening, we don't you know, see it, but it's all happening. We need it to make sense. We need the, it to boil down to like this child worrying that maybe he caused it because he gave her an apple. You know, and in that book by, just a way... By in that book by Goldsmith, you see a myth being created mm -hmm. that, you know, it starts off as just chaos and noise. Mm -hmm. And then by the end of it, you can see the, the narrative that's going to last for decades. You can see the, the myth of the event, you know, whether it be the uh, Kennedy assassination or Michael Jackson's death or whatever, you can see it, ah, that it, like you said, it kind of, it concretes. He was on, um, I forget it was John Stewart or the Colbert report, but uh, but somebody had on Colbert report, but Colbert had asked him, "Is it vampiric to write you know a book like this?" And I, and I, I was a little annoyed about Goldsmith's answer because I think the correct answer is that it is vampiric, and he's highlighting the vampirism that is apparent in these moments. You know that you know they're, they're covering on the news, and there becomes a moment where it seeds into vampirism, and we start to see it becoming a national myth. And we see, you know, I think the vampirism is the point and, and the reason to do it, as opposed to a thing you need to defend yourself from charges from. Uh, yeah. but, but just to kind of circle away from this uh, towards the others a little bit, uh, the other thing that you've become very well known for, in fact, you were known for this well before you started really doing conceptual writing, is what we call uh, concrete poetry, or uh, which is a subgenre or type of visual poetry. Um, and can you talk a bit about what visual poetry is, and sort of how you know uh, you kind of played into that? Sure, it, that plays um, into your body work. Visual poetry is once again just as the toolbox of, of conceptual writing are familiar tools. I think that concrete or visual poetry is familiar to a lot of your students as well. So this is something that we've encountered. Uh, it's something that many of us have been taught in, you know, grade school, 
you know, to create a poem that's shaped like a thing, you know, use the word A-P-P-L-E to create an apple, uh, maybe with W-O-R-M kind of sticking out of it. Uh, so there's the worm and the apple. Um, shaped poetry. And it's also something that we encounter in a lot of ways in our day-to-day. And that is, you know, logos and slogans of businesses that we see on street corners and in magazines and online and uh, and in advertising and in the mall. The, the conscious use of the shape and the form of the pieces of language, and I mean letters and punctuation marks, to create a feeling, a vibe. So what, what the concrete poetry that I use basically does is it looks at the smallest particles of language. So letters, punctuation marks, or even the pieces of letters, the ascenders, the, you know, the the round part of a C um, and, and works to try to create the same level of, and this sounds sappy, but the same level of beauty or the same level of reflection, self-reflection that a more lyric poem might create, but do that. You're still using the particles of language. You're still being hyper aware of how language comes together, but uh, do that just using letters. And by that, I mean, no actual communication occurs. There's no semantics. There's no meaning. It's just by combining the shapes of these letters together at a certain point in this shape, can I create something beautiful? Can I create something that is harmonious or balanced or, or subtle uh, using the smallest particles of language? And I think that you see this all the time from the Nike swoosh to the, you know, the McDonald's M to whatever it might be. They, they bring to, they bring up a mood. They, you know, the Nike swoosh. This, this, this calls back to Greek mythology. It, it, you know, like it's got all this, this, this depth to it, this heft that we think it's just a and a Nike, and that's it. But do you realize who Nike is? Do you realize why speed? Why this check mark? You know, all this stuff. And there, visual poetry to me is the is the creation of poems that are not meant to be read. They're meant to be looked at. So they, they bridge that gap between reading and looking. So like uh, something that hangs on the wall versus something in a book and moves towards, tries to move towards um, that same level of beauty using only the smallest particles of language without dealing with, without dealing with, without dealing with meaning. And to me, a successful visual poem, uh, once again, challenges what I think that writing is, you know, how I got there, the process of writing, um, combining this thing and this thing in this way. Um, is it writing if there are no words, uh, no sentences? Uh, but also, like, how far can I push the particles of language? How, much, how far can I rearrange these Lego pieces and still have them... Um, function, still have them do something beautiful and ethereal and exciting. So um, I've explained to my students once again that uh, when you buy a box of Lego, to, to work on that metaphor a bit, you buy a box of Lego and there's a spaceship on the cover and you are on the top of the box and you open it up and there's all the pieces and inside is an instruction manual to build that spaceship. So you build that spaceship and this is normative writing. You know, you follow the instructions and you create a thing that looks like a thing. 
And it's like, ah, it's a spaceship. And you play with a spaceship. But invariably, at some point, you're going to take that spaceship and you're going to bust it back down to its little pieces. You're going to lose the box. You're going to lose the instructions. And you're going to be left with a handful of pieces. And you're going to build something else. You're going to build a giraffe. You're going to build a, you know, a gun. You're going to build a police station. You're going to build a, you know, or just a pile of things arranged in, in you know, in an interesting and exciting way. And that, that to me, that's where the play of, of poetry, that's why I like being a poet, is that I get to turn a spaceship into a giraffe uh, and then take it apart and just arrange it as like, pile up all the blue bricks and then pile up all the yellow bricks and, and you know, create beautiful patterns. And I still get to take it apart and look it back over again. That's, that, that's the creative act to me. That's the, that's the love of writing is that that's why you read is to take, read that book, read Moby Dick and then take it apart with a wrench and like set all its pieces out on your driveway. And you're like, what the hell is, what the hell does this piece do? You know, what the, like, I thought the book started with call me Ishmael, but there's these 20 pages of quotes scattered about my front lawn. What do I do with these things? There's this big section on white stuff. And what do I do with this? And, and then put it all back together again, take Moby Dick, take it apart, put it back together again and turn it into a spaceship. And that, that to me is, that's the love of visual poetry is that I get to take the alphabet, bust it down into its little pieces and put it together again in a different order, ignoring the, the, the instruction manual entirely that like these letters go together in this way to create these sounds. These letters go this way because they fit nicely together physically. The K goes really nice with an L just underneath like that. You can spin it around and say, hey, look at that. Um, that to me is, that's the, that's the fun and the play and the beauty of visual poetry is that I get to fall in love with language and treat it like, like Lego or Play-Doh. Well, thanks. Uh, I think it's a great place to maybe end it uh, with just the possibility of poetry and uh, all these different ways of writing that I think, uh, you know, aren't, as you say, the normative ways that we maybe just think of doing writing out of the box, uh, but are, you know, perfectly legitimate uh, ways to work uh, and that really help widen that toolbox. Stephen King has a great metaphor of, you know, you want this toolbox. Uh, you just want to keep adding tools to your toolbox, but then you got to take the whole toolbox with you. Uh, because you never know, even if you're just going to use one little tool, you never know what uh, you might need once you get there um, out of that toolbox. And so um, uh, I think it's, it behooves any writer, I feel, to learn you know, how to make poems out of you know, nothing. <laughs> you know, poems out of words, poems out of shapes, uh, poems by stealing other people's poems. Shakespeare did it. Um, and you know, you can do it too. It's perfectly legitimate, uh, supposedly, according to Shakespeare. Well, I mean, that's, my favorite that's joke about Shakespeare, my joke about Shakespeare, Derek, I don't know if I ever told you this is, uh, you know, William Shakespeare is at a play with his friends and they're all watching the play and Shakespeare goes, turns to his friend and goes, this play is pretty good. You know, it would make a great play. And his <laughs> friends go, William, we're already watching this. This is already a play. And he turns to his buddy, goes, "You guys are idiots, and I'm a genius." <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. I mean, it's you know, 
poetry is wide enough and deep enough and strange enough and nobody's watching. So, you know, treat it like a, treat it like a playhouse, treat it like a, you know, a toy box that all this stuff is, there's no, there's no expectations of this form because it's all, because, like I said, because nobody's reading it, nobody's watching <laughs> and you are free to do as you wish with it. And that's, that's the fun part. That's where poetry happens is that if you're writing the way everybody else writes, you're, you're writing like them and write the way you want to write with complete freedom, throw away those instructions entirely and deal with this box of Lego. 